Friday at 1100 hours Central African time. You're welcome to interact with us on our Twitter handle at Channel Africa. You can also SMS your views to plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. You can also send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za. The conference of um, the conference of the parties to the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora CITES, also known as the World Wildlife Conference, was held in Geneva the past week. The conference revised that the trade rules for dozens of wildlife species that are threatened by unsustainable trade linked to overharvesting, overfishing, or overhunting. These range from commercially valuable fish and trees to charismatic mammals such as giraffes to amphibians and reptiles sold as exotic pets. It further concluded to increase quotas for trophy hunting of adult male black rhinos, almost doubling the current quota of five subject to strict controls. However, proposed trade in southern white rhino horns from Eswatini in Swaziland and live animals and hunting trophies from Namibia were not accepted. Now, to help us understand this discussion, uh, we joined on the line by Pelham Jones, who's the chairman of South Africa's Private Rhino Owners Association, and Ross Harvey, who's a freelance conservation economist. Good morning to both of you. Morning. Good morning to you. Pelham, let me start with you because I understand that you were in Geneva this past week. Please give us a bit of background on this COP18 conference. Right, so the the history of the conference goes back some 44, 44, 45-odd years when the association was created as an international body to regulate a trade in endangered and threatened species. So it's a little bit like the United Nations started off on very sound and honorable uh, principles, but by our opinion, have now somewhat deviated from their uh, um, principles of, of doing best in the interests of, of both species, as well as uh, what is, should be respected in terms of sovereign rights of countries. Mm. When you say deviated, Pelham, what, what do you mean? Or so how? We, we, we have seen recent emergence of very powerful animal rights and non-government organizations or so-called NGOs that uh, can influence uh, uh, policy of, of both, uh, rather, opinion of public and policy of, of government. So um, when one looks at what CITES stands for, it is, first of all, a scientific uh, um, authority. In other words, we are making decisions based on factual knowledge. Um, mm. We are uh, b- b- guided by agreed-upon policies and, and, and principles, and we follow international rules of, of enforcement. So those are largely your, your, your guiding principles on which CITES was established. Unfortunately, we have now moved away from that to a very polarized environment of influence by animal rights NGOs who have now brought emotions and money into the discussion and we are actually seeing uh, uh, certain member countries uh, actually being influenced by these animal rights NGOs to no longer do what is scientifically correct but Mm -hmm. more on emotive uh, uh, argument. No, we're no longer making decisions on facts but based on emotive assumptions. Mm. And and what came out of the conference which was of significant importance to you, uh, Pelham? Well, the, the significant importance was a total disregard 
for the sovereign rights of the particularly the SADC countries, mm. all of whom, not all of them, many of them put forward very, very well thought through uh, proposals which has to do with elephant management, rhino management, um, etc. And basically we sadly saw uh, uh, Kenya and certain West African countries who really own, let's say, some 10% of these key iconic species um, influencing the world and uh, uh, arriving at detrimental decisions on, mm. on Southern Africa, who have a very, very proud record of excellent management of their iconic species. And I'm referring, obviously, to you know, the elephant, uh, uh, rhino, and so, so it carries on. So basically, as a walk away from, from the COP, as it's referred to the Conference of the Parties, the tail is very much wagging the dog, mm. and we are also seeing a somewhat unsympathetic international community, which includes the European Union, North America, even South America, disregarding the needs of, of Southern Africa. Now, bearing in mind, Southern Africa, we're a totally different playing field to what you see in Europe. We have mm. rural communities that have to be, uh, whose needs need to be addressed. We have crop raiding animals. We have rural poverty alleviation. Um, and so I can carry on and on. So bottom line was, it was a very unhappy event for, uh, uh, for the SADAC region. Mm. Russ, what are your thoughts? Has uh, COP18 or CITES moved away from its original mandate? If so, how so? Uh, yeah, so I'd, I'd have to say that I disagree. Um, and I, I think part of the problem in the discourse is that there's this false dichotomy now being presented between emotion and science. Mm. Um, the, the truth is that there is debate within the scientific community that often isn't engaged with. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, there's a, a tendency to hide behind sovereignty uh, as a kind of blanket cover under which to say, listen, we know best. Uh, we've conserved our species and therefore don't tell us what to do. These are our animals. If we want to trade in rhino horn or we want to trade in elephant ivory, then you need to allow us to do so mm. and don't tell us what to do. Now, that, as I said, ignores uh, the, the very serious scientific debate as to whether these are the, the most appropriate conservation measures that we have because what they do is they build on an assumption that unless you place some kind of uh, measurable economic value on an animal's head, uh, then it will not be conserved. Now, that is a particularly narrow way of looking at things. Uh, it also assumes that trade will be well-regulated, properly governed, and that the proceeds will accrue to local communities. Now, the argument tends to be, well, uh, CITES now has moved away from its principles, it's so emotional, it doesn't want us to trade in rhino horn or hunt or trade in ivory, um, and so, you know, that land is now just going to be turned over to agriculture uh, and not conserved any longer. Now, I think that's far from the truth, and I think the truth is that a lot of the assumptions behind the pro-trade argument uh, haven't been tested, uh, one of which is that we'd have a well-governed trade, as I said, now that is really where the, the problem comes in. You know, exactly what price is going to be sufficient to encourage farmers to breed rhinos, for instance, and breed them well? Mm. Um, and and what 
what price is going to incentivize them to do that and yet not provide an incentive for poaching because poaching is always cheaper. Mm. And so part of the science and the scientific argument here, in the, it's certainly in the economic realm, is can a well-regulated trade, let's give that assumption away for, for the time being, mm. um, can a well-regulated trade crowd out the incentive to poach and to use the legal trade as a laundering mechanism uh, for illegal supply. And our, our concern, obviously, and I think this is a concern shared by member states or, or member parties to the CITES uh, conference of the parties, uh, is, uh, is really a matter of, of whether, uh, whether trade can solve the problems that it says it can. And, mm-hmm. and it just doesn't seem clear uh, that, it, that it can do so. Plus, this idea that the money will somehow be ring-fenced and go back to local communities, uh, you, you know, we don't see that. You know, this is the argument typically proposed in favor of, of things like elephant trophy hunting. Mm. And yet the research that has been conducted, and there's not a lot of it because hunters tend not to open their books up for scrutiny, uh, is uh, we, we haven't seen uh, much of that money actually accrue back to local communities. And so as far as I'm concerned, what we're seeing uh, from Southern African nations is, is frankly, uh, a neo-colonialist argument that hides behind sovereignty and says, well, we want to be allowed to do whatever we want with our animals, mm. and never mind the fact that these animals are actually shared across borders. 76% of the world's elephants are shared, uh, for instance. So if an elephant wakes up in the middle and it goes to sleep in Botswana, whose elephant is it, actually? Mm. And how do we build hunting regulations um, or or ivory trade regulations, uh, given this shared nature of our migratory species, right? that's a very difficult question to answer. Mm. Um, and we're saying, well, you know, we, we need a trade or we need a hunt so that we can just, what, perpetuate dependence on the global north. Uh, Western white wealthy hunters come and extract a trophy from Africa Mm. Um, and, and dish out a bit of nyama to local communities and then say, oh, we are alleviating rural poverty. This is a racist attitude. And, you know, I really wish that we could understand that uh, this idea that the animals are, are owned, they're some kind of commodity that we mm. can objectify and trade in their part, uh, you know, as a means of, of contributing to conservation. I, I think that that, that really needs to, to be examined. Now, this mm. is not an emotional issue. This is a science issue. They, you know, we live in a global context that is quite complicated. There is illegal trade. And the question that has to be answered, at least from the economics domain, is whether trade will enhance or hinder conservation. Mm. And so CITES makes its decisions on the grounds of whether it thinks that illegal trade will exacerbate demand, say, for instance, for ivory and rhino horns, um, and we don't have good answers, right? So mm. we, we don't know what's likely to happen on the demand side of the equation. Um, and until we can have some kind of reasonable scientific idea of what the demand curve is likely to do in response to supply-side decisions, uh, then we should be very careful using the precautionary principle on which CITES is implicitly founded. Uh, we should be careful about what kind of decisions we make. And so I think that... Uh, COP18 made the right decisions around trade in ivory and rhino horn, for instance. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, tell them and I disagree, you know, mm. that's, uh, mm. but 
But I think that to catch the, the debate in terms of emotion versus fact and, uh, you know, if, if science is divorced from ethics, you know, and, and that the Southern African view regarding science in inverted commas is the only one, I think that that's, uh, that, that's actually emotional. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's the irony of the, of the situation is that the Southern African nations are crying. I mean, they are being emotional about the decisions that, that were made and then mm-hmm. saying, oh, you know, the rest of you are just being emotional and, mm-hmm. and ignoring science. But mm-hmm. as I, I hope I've shown you, there, there is actually debate in mm-hmm. science, and not every statement made by a scientist is necessarily a scientific statement just because it's made by a mm-hmm. scientist. And there are many scientists in these global NGOs that Southern African nations now hate, and of course they just dumped into one basket as if they're all the same, you know. Mm-hmm. I just don't... I'm struggling to understand this because I think we need to have a specific debate and say, okay, listen, what exactly is it that can serve conservation ends? Can Mm. can trade in rhino horn or in stockpiled ivory really serve conservation ends? Mm. What are the likely unintended negative consequences that may flow from that. Mm. That is what I want to point to you right now, uh, Ross, is how then should Southern Africa be looking at this going forward in terms of then assisting them in this, um, you know, sort of in in inverted commas, unhappy um, outcomes of the the parties? Yeah, so look, I'll be quick because obviously I want to give Pelham a a chance to respond. But... um, I think that what we really need to be doing, and I think this is where the debate is headed, is to say, right, what are the alternatives? Okay, if we can't trade in ivory or rhino horn, uh, what are we going to do differently to fund conservation? Mm. And there I think we need to come up with some some fairly serious alternatives, one of which is a potential global biodiversity tax, um, where, where the global north pays, uh, literally pays, uh, African countries to conserve its wilderness landscapes. Um, the the difficulty with the the proposed trade solution from Southern African nations is that we've seen this movie before, uh, and if the demand curve shifts out and it exacerbates poaching because poachers get paid a flat rate, they don't get paid market prices and they get paid a flat rate, which will almost always ensure that the incentive to poach is higher than the incentive not to. It means that we have to find a different way of getting money into the hands of local communities. We need to change our community-based natural resource management models so mm. the distribution of benefits to local communities uh, is, is a lot more sound uh, and doesn't rely on, on, uh, on hunting or, or trading in ivory because that is the way the, the world is, is going saying, listen, we, we need to move away from merely commoditizing our, our animals. Mm. Um, and so that's, I think that's the, the conversation is, okay, what are the alternatives? You know, and what are the alternatives to things like trophy hunting? Uh, the alternatives are probably uh, self-drive tourism, uh, adventure tourism, ecotourism that helps to keep uh, currently fragmented landscapes connected so that elephants have space to move. Mm. Um, so that they perform their natural ecological function and so on. And same thing with lions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, this, this idea of trading in, in lion bones and trading in ivory and rhino horn, we, uh, you know, we just don't know enough about price formation on the demand side to warrant that. So we need to look for, the conversation needs to be now about what we do in the absence 
of being allowed to trade in our ivory and our rhino horns mm. so that it doesn't continue to be suppressed into the black market um, where <laughs> lots of people benefit, mm. much more than these so-called Western NGOs who just uh, supposedly influence other countries. Mm. Pelham, what are your thoughts? I mean, how would you respond to, to Ross saying, I mean, we should rather move away from being emotional but look at these alternatives, possible alternatives? Okay, so when we talk about emotion, bearing in mind that we are making decisions on science and fact-based principles, and Mm. please respect one thing, like when you talk to lawyers, you talk to different uh, uh, economists, you get different um, opinions. Mm. So let's let's put the facts on the the, the table. First of all, we've had a trade ban in place for over 42 years. Ask yourself one simple question, and has it worked? Sadly, no. Over 100,000 rhino have been poached. 23 out of 33 range states have no rhino. Countries like Tanzania have less than 100 rhino left, used to be home to thousands. So the so-called precautionary precautionary principle that has been applied for the last 42 years, in other words, the fear to change, the fear to try something different, has failed miserably and terribly. South Africa, the last 10 years, uh, has lost over 800 million U.S. dollars. That's, that's over 100 billion South African rand mm. in loss of asset, loss of production, and devaluation on rhino alone. Add to that, obviously, your, your, your security costs. So now there is, a, 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 again, the fear factor, what about laundering? Well, we have an incredibly competent method of uh, uh, DNA analysis, like you do with all forensic uh, uh, investigations uh, today. I would counter what Ross said, whereby Botswana had have many examples of not simply giving local communities a bag full of nyama, mm. but meaningful economic poverty alleviation where they have benefited. There are sections of Botswana, by example, that are of no interest to the eco-tourists for different reasons. It's remoteness, it's difficulty to get there, etc. But the hunting community have provided factually uh, a meaningful uh, uh, um, uh, economic assistance. So now, when we talk about the current illegal trade, Mm. again, let's unbundle that for a minute. Horns are shot or removed from from Africa, particularly in southern Africa at this moment in time, and end up, let's say, in Laos. The horn is there traded, is sold at about 23 to 25,000 US dollars per kilogram, Mm -hmm. and it then enters two key markets, well, three key markets. One is a a, 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 a possession uh, value, as you see in Vietnam. You have the traditional Chinese medicine market, and then you have the fast-emerging jewelry market where the horn is turned into bracelets, earrings, etc., etc., and the value now goes up as much as 180,000 US dollar per kilogram. Mm. So you can see the massive profiteering that is taking place from our wildlife resource. And if anybody thinks prohibition, as it was applied on um, alcohol and drugs and so on, is going to work, you are completely economically naive to believe that that's going to, 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 to happen. So we are saying, whilst we still have a meaningful population, whilst we still have a very, very substantive stockpile of of horn, pray God, allow us to meet end-user demand through a regulated, transparent, compliant supply, 
where for every rhino horn sold to end user to meet end user demand, you take the pressure away from your uh, 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 wild population. Now, with every horn sold, we work on the simplistic theory and we save a rhino's uh, uh, life. When one now goes into the economics of this, and we have done extensive economic analysis with individuals who are authorities and experts in wildlife economics, we know, not we believe, we know we can undercut the current illegal trade very substantially from the current uh, $25,000 US dollar per kilogram to about $10,000 per kilogram, and it need be even less. Mm. So... Therefore, the illegal market, would they be able to compete at a higher rate than the legal market? Obviously not. So we believe not by flooding the market, but by simply providing a legal product, certified, registered, and that the owners are not subject to prosecution, uh, uh, that we will be able to undermine the So this economic model is not new. It has been applied before in other cases of, of environmental uh, uh, species. Mm. And that is what our plea is, because as Ross very, very correctly uh, pointed out in his, in his uh, observations, so if trade is not allowed, who is going to pay the tab? Who is going to say, okay, these communities, whether it be on elephant, whether it be on rhino, who are footing the bull for both conservation and, 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 and cost of ownership, is so huge across mm-hmm. the SADAC region. Why was it when during the COP and Swaziland made their impassioned plea for financial assistance, they were uh, on the one side told that they should not trade, but in the conclusion of their debate. They said, if you deny us the right to trade, to sell this commodity, to reduce illegal demand, then please will somebody step forward and give us the funding to pay for our conservation needs. Mm-hmm. We have droughts, we have an ever-increasing security cost, etc. And the whole of over 3,000 people was silent. Not a single member, not a single NGO stepped up and said, okay, and I will pay. Bearing in mind that Swaziland has a minute rhino population of less than 100 animals as compared to, let's say, South Africa. Mm. Similarly, they have a a, a minute elephant population as compared to Botswana, and so it carries on and on. So the precautionary principle is what is killing our wildlife. We have science, uh, uh, fact-based argument, which was basically ignored. In a recent release that I sent out to, 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 to my members, I headed the document by saying, do not confuse me with the facts, because I've already made up my mind. And that was the mentality of what we had to suffer. And what came out of it was a statement after statement of indignation from the SADAC community, led by Tanzania, who really said to the rest of the world, your arrogance against us in terms of our need for uh, 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 conservation strategies, which are inclusive of communities. Mm. And we will explain to you how the money flow will take place, how the beneficiation can take place within a country. We're simply brushed aside and ignored. And I think that is where the deep-centered anger 
has now come uh, mm-hmm. across SADC. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the voice of Pelham Jones, chairman of South Africa's Private Rhino Owners Association. He's on the line, also joined by Ross Harvey, who's a freelance conservation economist. Let me go for a quick break, gentlemen, then we'll continue because I heard Ross trying to, um, I don't know if he wanted to make a comment there. Are, are you? Can we go on a quick break and then we'll continue after this? I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African Time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African Perspective. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa. Rise. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, welcome back to African Dialogue. It's 28 minutes before 12. A reminder that in about 15 minutes, we'll get an econ update followed by a sports update. Well, I'm on the line to Pelham Jones, who's the chairman of South Africa's Private Rhinos Association. Also, Ross Harvey, who's a freelance conservation economist. On the show today, we're looking back at the conference of the parties to the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, CITES COP18, also known as the World Wildlife Life conference that was held in Geneva. Now, you know, before the break, uh, Ross Palamos was, was looking at, you know, how this is so important to Southern Africa. And I mean, a trade ban of 40 years, which has really not been effective because illegal trade is still happening. Can we really regulate this um, years to come, uh, Ross? Yeah, so I think there are a few points worth responding to there. Yeah. Um, and and look, I mean, the, the the line of reasoning is is attractive from supply side economics, but I'd I'd like to just take issue with a few of the assumptions that are often not uh, sufficiently explored or tested here. So one, the argument tends to be uh, the CITES trade ban hasn't worked on rhino horn. It was implemented in 1977, and we've lost uh, x number of rhinos, and therefore trade bans don't work. Now that argument has difficulties for a number of reasons. One, uh, we did actually see a recovery in rhino, horn, uh, in rhino populations after 1993 because of the 
earlier amendment where the U.S. said, listen, Taiwan, if you carry on buying rhino horn, we don't purchase any of your electronic goods. Mm. Now, that that did have a positive impact. And in fact, we didn't see a spike in, in rhino poaching uh, in South Africa up until around 2007. The department then imposed a moratorium on domestic trade in 2009 in response to that. Now, typically what you'll hear is that that ban created uh, demand because it created an artificial sense of scarcity and therefore prices went up. No, prices went up because uh, Asian economies were growing and uh, and disposable income was, was growing among a population that is desirous of rhino horn. Mm. Um, so this idea that trade bans don't work uh, it's too blanket a statement. You know, as an economist, for my sins, <laughs> that, that's something that I take issue with. I, and to say that this is equivalent to prohibition against alcohol or drugs, and we've seen that that didn't work, that's disingenuous because we're not talking about the same product. We're not talking about a physiologically addictive substance. But we are talking about something that that has huge demand, and it's still rightly identified. There are at least three channels, at least three segments of consumer demand that we're talking about. But the assumption here is that we could harvest enough rhino horn to satisfy that demand, and that has not been shown uh, that we could do that. Even if at best we harvested 14 tons a year, the, at the height of its demand, uh, the um, rhino horn uh, quantity demanded was around 70 tons per year. So even if you assume that we could farm and supply the truth is that it remains cheaper to poach and to supply poached material to market. Now, that that has another important element to it, and that is that many consumers at the high end or the price-insensitive component of demand demand to see, quite literally, that the rhino horn has been extracted from a wild rhino. In other words, they want to see the blood and the hair and the top of the tusk. Mm. Um, and this is why, often, when you come across a poached rhino, you'll see that it's its skull has been horribly severed off to extract the kilogram of horn that exists underneath the skin. Mm. So so it's not true to say that we could have a well-regulated, and this is the second assumption that I want to deal with, because this keeps coming up. No, we could have a perfectly well-regulated system. We could undercut the illegal market. Well, how can you undercut an illegal market if it's cheaper to supply through poaching than it is through farming well? Um, and we have a government, I mean, let's be serious, that can barely keep the lights on. It's not likely to be able to have the capacity or the will or the the, the, the technology to identify, uh, you know, I mean, we, we see this. I mean, we, we see that we don't even conduct DNA tests on, on the lion bones that leave South Africa, except randomly and on very uh, odd occasion. So... This idea that it will suddenly all be perfect and well-regulated is, is just not going to fly. Um, right, so, so I think that's a, a, an important argument to be made on the, on the regulation front. Mm. Plus, what a lot of people seem not to understand or grasp or want to grasp is that having an incomplete ban, in other words, you have domestic trade allowed but international trade not allowed, uh, create serious confusion both for law enforcement officials and for consumers. So consumers are being told, no, 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 reduce your demand, but they're looking at the supply side and and we, we have horn stockpiled and traded in South Africa. So what do people do who want rhino horn? If they want to 
legally, they can gonna buy it from John Hume or uh, Derek Lewitton or whoever is willing to sell the stuff. Mm. Now, and then they take it back, um, or you have pseudo hunting, um, you know, because hunting is allowed, but trade isn't, so you, you have hunts and then people take their rhino horn back under cover of uh, personal items. So this thing is is an enormously complex beast, and it's not good enough. It's way too simplistic on the economics to simply say, well, it's worked with vacuna and crocodile and so on. What we're starting to see vacuna populations being poached, and crocodile is entirely different thing. You know, you can supply a lot of it. I don't, I don't like it. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you can supply that leather and, and it's very easy to shift the demand from wild demand to farm demand being met. Whereas with rhino horn, it's not clear that we could do that. And it's not clear that we could even produce enough, even if that could be the case. Mm-hmm. We just don't know enough about what would happen on the demand side. And I think this is my, my concern. And I don't think that it's fair to say, well, just because you don't know doesn't mean you should be fearful of trying something new. Could I the come rest, in here, please? Yes. Sorry, just tell him last point. Um, oh, and okay. That, okay, you can finish up, Ross. We, yeah, so we we often don't consider that there may be a stigma effect currently in place. And if you start supplying legally, that that demand curve may shift out completely. So in other words, consumers who currently don't purchase um, because of the stigma effect will now purchase. And we don't know. We're talking about a, a potential billion consumers or more across Asia mm. who want to, to consume rhino horn. I, I just don't see that we could ever meet that. If we, if we let that genie out of the bottle, and again, Pelham's going to say this is just a fear-based response, but I mm. think that we have to give consideration to the undermining of the stigma effect that would occur through legal trade. Mm. Pelham? So, Okay, so no, thanks for that, and thanks, Ross. Um, the, the, we, we've also, as I indicated earlier on, consulted with a number of economists, and um, they have a very, very different take on the market movement or influences as a result of, 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 of illegal trade. Mm. So first of all, let's talk about regulation. In South Africa, the rhino horn and ivory is all incredibly uh, well uh, controlled under very, very strict legislation called NEMBA, and that, um, that that means that you're uh, uh, subject to stockpile audit, um, and obviously internationally we are all regulated under, under CITES. Now let's look at on the, on the demand side. Currently, the reality is some 1,000 sets of horns leave Africa, in other words, that's animals poached in South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Namibia, etc. So... The current uh, uh, volume meet going out to meet end user demand is about a thousand sets of horns, or mm. four and a half or thousand, uh, four and a half uh, thousand tons of of, of horn. Mm. Now, the economists that we speak to tell us, based on the the value of the commodity, it's a little bit like now there's an open supply of diamonds. Everybody would like to buy their a wife or girlfriend, a blue carrot, whatever diamond, but the economics of it says, well, it's simply unaffordable. So the uh, reality is it will remain as a high-priced commodity, not accessible to the majority of consumers. Um, And furthermore, it must be borne in mind that there is a huge percentage of commodity being sold, which is not rhino horn, but in fact is fake product. 
So we have gone to the Far East. We have bought uh, uh, the so-called TCM products and jewelry pieces, etc. We've brought it back to our uh, uh, DNA laboratory here in South Africa. And in certain areas, as much as 90% of the, of the product, in fact, is proven to be fake. So there's a huge supplementary component to this, to this uh, deliberation jury due to the fake supply. Mm-hmm. I just want to contradict uh, Ross on, on one aspect. And that is based on the recent traffic report, which in fact was tabled during during COP. And that is that the uh, uh, the what's the right word? The processing, the beneficiation of the product is to a larger degree than ever occurring in the uh, uh, the range state. In other words, yeah. whereas in the past rhino horns would be sold in, in as, as a raw horn, or in the case of ivory, now we are seeing from uh, 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 interceptions, in fact, blocks of ivory or, 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 or horn, etc., being being uh, uh, exported. So, And we also have contradictory research that says, no, we don't want to buy from a wild, uh, uh, wild-harvested animal. We would much rather buy from uh, an animal that we know was uh, dehorned, mm. as you may need, the animal is still alive, and there was no detrimental in- impact. The last point I want to raise in, in terms of what Ross was, 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 was mentioning, this is the, the cost of the illegal chain, which, as we all know, risk and reward walk hand in hand. There's a parallel here. So the bigger the risk, the bigger the reward that is, will be demanded by the criminal parties involved in the poaching process. Now, if the current uh, supply line is, is bringing corn into Laos, at some 23,000 US dollar, and we are able to supply a transparent, regulated, certified horn into the same market at, let's say, 10,000 US dollar per, per, per kilogram. The illegal traders are, to be able to undercut that, are going to have to be coming in, let's say, at 6,000 US dollars per kilogram. Mm. If one does a cost analysis on what does it take to uh, bring a horn illegally into Laos, the costs are in fact substantially higher than six thousand US dollars. So then the end user would say, "Well, I've got two options. I can either try to continue to poach, or bearing in mind that a very high percentage, as in close to thirty percent of all horns that get exported, are intercepted by law enforcement. So you have a loss factor." in your exporting process. And now you say to yourself, well, why should I take this risk um, and am forced to come to market at 6,000 US dollar per kilogram Mm. with an actual fact I can buy from a legal supply at 10,000, I'm making a further $13,000 per kilogram. In any case, Mm. it's certified, it's registered, it's legal, and I can in turn on-sell it to my uh, uh, end users whether it be for jewelry, TCM, or, or, or status symbol in, in Vietnam. So the economics tell you a very different story to what it would, could be just purely assumptive. So we believe we've gone to enormous lengths to research, analyze, and understand the market. And we do not consider our con- conduct to be in the slightest bit either e- 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 emotive nor reckless. To the opposite, we are saying a 42-year ban has not been successful, despite best efforts of all parties. Let us now, whilst we still do have animals, um, apply this as an attempt, because the precautionary principle 
is not working, unfortunately. Thank you so much, Palam. I have to stop you right there. I'm over by a minute and my econ uh, <laughs> lady is already waiting for to give us an, an econ update. But thank you so much. It has been a very interesting discussion. I've been certainly educated on this and I think this discussion can't end here. It has to continue and just make everyone understand the importance of what we're discussing when we talk about CITES. Thank you so much to both my guests, Palam Jones, who's the chairman of South Africa's Private Rhino Owners Association. Also, Ross Harvey, who's a freelance conservation economist. Thank you both so much. Time now for the Econ News.